KMTT Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. Today is Wednesday. We're starting a new series for the next 10 weeks. Uh, we'll be hosting Harav Yitzhak Blau, who will be giving a series on modern rabbinic thought. Starting this week, first shiur uh, today will be on the Tiferet Yisrael, Harav Yisrael Lifshitz, and his commentary to Perkei Avot, the Tefet Yisrael wrote a commentary on the entire Mishnah, and uh, his commentary to the Mishnah of Avot has a number of uh, very, very interesting philosophical points. That'll be the first lecture, and for the next ten weeks, a different uh, different thinker, different thinker each week. Harav Yitzhak, uh, Yitzhak Blau, we're very happy to have him join us. In this series, we're going to look at the thought of some achronim, some of them more well-known, some less well-known, but I think all of whom deserve a further study for the profundity of their thought. And we're going to start with the commentator on the Mishnah, Rav Yisrael Lifshitz, author of the Tiferet Yisrael. just like to begin with a brief biography. Rav Lifshitz was a Rav in Germany. He lived from 1782 to 1860. He was the Rav in such cities as Dessau and Danzig. And his commentary to Tiferet Yisrael was once part of the classic edition of the Mishnah. In fact, my one complaint with the tremendous work done by Pinchas Kahati is as follows. Because of Kahati's uh, monumental efforts, it's certainly much easier to learn Mishnah now. And often people are really learning Mishnah to get a broad overview of uh, Shas. And certainly Kahati's work is incredibly helpful. But because of Kati's work, you rarely see what was the old standard edition of the Mishnah, which included the commentaries of Rav Bartanura and the Tosavet Yontov and the Tiferet Yisrael of Rav Lifshitz. And it seems to me it's a real loss that people are not using this commentary. It's really a wonderful commentary. Rav Lifshitz's commentary divides into two parts, what he calls the Yachin and the Boaz. The Yachin is his running commentary, a line-by-line commentary. The Boaz is an extended analysis of certain choice topics. It's almost as if Rav Lifshitz chose to be both Rashi and Tosfot on the Mishnah, with the Achin functioning as Rashi and the Boaz functioning as Tosfot. Rav Lifshitz was a grand organizer, and he would often have a lengthy introduction where he would list the details if he thought that people didn't know the Halachot. So three of the Starim begin with the Hakdamah. Kachim has an introduction called Chomer Bakodesh, outlining the details of Kachim. Tarot has a long introduction called Yivake Shtat, and Moed also has an introduction which doesn't deal with the totality of Moed, but with certain select topics. For example, there is a section on Hilchot Shabbos called Kalkalat Shabbos, which is often used when people study Hilchot Shabbos seriously. There is also an introduction called Shvile Dirakia, which outlines the principles of the Jewish calendar. And we'll see that Rav Lifshitz was a person of tremendously great intellectual breadth, is something we'll return to more next week, in next week's year. Basically, every aspect of Torah and beyond Torah as well interested him intellectually. And he was also interested in the mathematical workings of the calendar. So he has this introduction called Shvili Durakia. But for today's year, we're not going to focus on the breadth of Rav Lifshitz. We'll focus more on Rav Lifshitz in a particular Masechet. Rav Lifshitz is a commentary on a vote. Often, if you want to get a sense of the worldview of a particular thinker, so the commentary on a vote is going to reveal that in a more profound way often than other Masechet. So today we'll focus on Rav Lifshitz's commentary on a vote. And I think we'll discover a person of tremendous insight. One aspect of Rav Lifshitz's commentary on Avot that deserves mention is he assumes that all the Mishnayot reflect a unified theme. Meaning, if we think about the structure of Avot, we have a couple of statements of various Tanaim, 
Hu haya omer. He would say the following things. I mean, if these are the three things, let's say that a given Tana stood for. Now, arguably, the Tana could have stood for disparate elements that aren't really related. But Rav Lifshitz was uh, quite consistent through Avot in the, assuming that it's really one essential theme with various parts that make up that theme. Let's start with an example of this. If we look in Avod, Perak Bet, Halach, Mishnah, excuse me, Yid Gimel, Perak Bet, Mishnah, Yid Gimel, we have as follows. Rabbi Shimon Omer, have Izahir be Kriyat Shema uvetfila. Persian should be cautious about Kriyat Shema and Davening. Ukshatamit Palel al Tas Tfilatcha Keva. And when you pray, don't make it a fixed ritual rote, right? Make it something of liveliness and enthusiastic and with intent. El Rachamim Betachnun Lufnei HaMakom Baruchu. Then it quotes a Pasuk. Then there's a third principle, Va'al tehi rasha Don't be wicked in your own eyes. Now, here we have three ideas of Rabbi Shimon. Be careful about Kriyat Shema and davening. Secondly, when you daven, don't make it a rote. Make it with intent. Thirdly, don't be wicked in your own eyes. Now, many commentaries do not feel a need to link the third principle with the first two. The first two are ideas relating to the world of prayer. The last one is a separate idea. Right? The Rambam says, Alti Rasha Beinecha, Lo Taksik Atzmecha Right? Don't think that you're evil, right? It's bad to think that you're evil. But of course, based on Rav Lifshitz's methodological assumption about Avot, all three have to be linked. So Rav Lifshitz argues, What's Alti Rasha Befnei Atzmecha? The Gamze Miniag Dola Bekavanat Atfila. This is also a major stumbling block in having intent in prayer. When you think that you are wicked, you despair for mercy. You think that all your prayers cannot possibly be beneficial. And I think a revolution's reading is quite convincing here. Right? There's a certain uh, audacity necessary for prayer, a certain sense of self-worth. There's something Rav Silvechik has focused on in Rayanot Al-Tfilah. And uh, lacking that sense of self-worth really makes prayer impossible. Indeed, how can one approach the Ribbono Shalolam with requests if one thinks that one is worthless? Right? The endeavor of prayer will come to a halt. And there, Rav Lishitz's reading has Rabbi Shimon saying three things about prayer. Be careful about certain prayers and pray with intent. And don't decide that you're wicked because that will indeed put an end to the endeavor of prayer. We'll look at a few more examples of this methodology of Rav Lifshitz. He also, as I mentioned, is into categorizing and making lists. So often I'll view the different principles of a Mishnah as... A, thematically related, and B, reflecting the different components that make up a given idea. So let us look at an example in the first parak. In Parak Aleph, Mishnah Yud Gimel, we have some more statements of Hillel. And Hillel says, If you try to get a name, you'll lose your name. If you don't add on Yasif, you will be uh, taken away. Udilo Yalif, excuse me, I shouldn't say you'll be taken away. The Bartanura has Dilo Mosif Yasif as uh, you'll lose what you've learned already. Udilo Yalif, Katalachayev, and if you don't, now we'll translate it as learn for now, you're obligated with the death penalty. Udishtamesh Betaga Chalaf, and if you use the crown of Torah, you'll also pass away from this world. So we have four ideas here. One about searching for the name, striving for your own name being problematic. The other one about not adding to learning, about using the crown of Torah. Now, again, arguably, this is not one theme. Maybe there are different themes here. There's problems of uh, honor and arrogance. There's problems of not being wanting to learn. There's problems of using Torah for your own purposes. These might be disparate themes. Once again, Rav Lifshitz is convinced that it's all different elements of the same theme. And Rav Lifshitz reads this mission as all being about humility, which certainly makes sense if Hillel is the author. We know 
that according to the Agadat and Masechet Shabbat, Hill is described as being the grand Anav, a greatly humble person. And perhaps that's also motivating Rav Lifshitz's reading here, that this mission is really about humility. And Rav Lifshitz talks about four elements of arrogance in this Mishnah. So let's go through the Mishnah again. Nagid Shema, the one who searches for a name. And here Rav Lifshitz says, this is someone who always wants to get kavod, always searching for honor, would like to be uh, highly prominent at the shul dinner. And Avad Shema, the end result of that is that he loses his name. Now the inter- interesting thing here is, and this we'll talk more about it next year, Rav Lifshitz explains this not just in terms of divine providence, but more naturalistically. See that Rav Lifshitz, in terms of... Uh, his almost scientific bent is a strong believer that the natural order is something very real and that God does not always change it so quickly. And here, Revelations explains everything not just in terms of divine punishment, but also in terms of a natural result. And he says, with those who demand honor, even if they have the clout and the power to demand it, but he points out very powerfully, those that stand before such a person lie to him with their tongues. They claim to give him great honor. But they degrade him in their hearts. Because the truth is, they don't really honor him. When you're forced to honor somebody, you don't really honor them. And then, as invariably happens, when those in power lose it, then those that waited and bid their time will really uh, give it to the person they used to have to uh, bow down to, as it were. And that, almost in a naturalistic fashion, and those that are always demanding honor will soon find that they lose it. Although he does throw in as well that a Baruch will also be involved. But there seems to be both this divine providence element and a naturalistic element. Be that as it may, the Gid Shema ends up being about the arrogant person who always wants to get honored. The low Mosif, not to add learning, which wasn't clearly about arrogance, Rav Lifshitz says about arrogance also. And here I think he says something very insightful. He says there are three reasons why the arrogant person will not learn. First of all, the arrogant person doesn't want anyone to know that he's ignorant. Right? If the person shows up in his year, it reveals that there's something for him to learn. Maybe the arrogant person feels better not to come learn and not have anyone think that I don't know. Secondly, he thinks the teacher is not good enough. What kind of teacher could teach me? I'm the one who knows the most. Thirdly, he feels that the teacher will know his ignorance. So again, the lack of learning here is not just a lack of attachment to learning for the regulations, but a, a function of your arrogance. Then, he assumes that's actually about teaching, that the arrogant person, just like he's motivated not to learn, is also motivated not to teach. And here he says two factors. One is he thinks, what student is worthy of him? Right? One can imagine perhaps uh, a university professor, Rosh Yeshiva, who's decided that the students aren't really worthy of their insights and therefore don't really give them the time of day. Secondly, he says, this is also quite interesting, sometimes the knowledgeable person will be reluctant to teach others because then they'll know as much as him. And there'll be a sense that, well, now I'm not special anymore. Other people know what I know. He actually mentions a very interesting Gemara about Rav Yochanan. Rav Yochanan was trying to find the Gemara in Yuma Pedalot, trying to find the cure for certain disease. And as soon as he found out, he taught it in public. Uh, I.e., Rav Yochanan's reaction was not to say, well, now I'll be the only special person in this town who knows the medical cure, but rather everyone should know it. Knowledge is meant to be shared. But the arrogant person won't think in those terms. Then fourthly, the last part of the Mishnah, Dishtamish Petaga, using the crown of Torah, where says, this is someone who is involved in charitable works, but only so that people will think that, that they're, they're at Tzaddik. They're using the crown of Torah, using Torah to try to advance your name. So again, in this Mishnah, where has four aspects of the arrogant person. The arrogant person wants to get honored at the Shul dinner, Nagid Shema. The arrogant person refuses to learn, Delo Mosif. Delo Yalef, he refuses to teach. With Dishtamish Petaga, and the arrogant person sees Torah and Mitzvot as a way of furthering 
their own social standing. And this is something that Hillel is rejecting in a fourfold fashion. Let us look at two more examples of this <coughs> methodology of Lifshitz. And here I think Lifshitz is particularly insightful. If we move to the third parak, we have the following. This is Paragimel Mishnah Yud. And this is from Rabbi Dosib and Hurkanus. Rabbi Dosib and Hurkanus Omer. Shena shel Shachrit, the morning sleep. Ve'yayin shel Tzaharayim, and the afternoon wine. Ve'sichat yeladim, and childish chatter. Ve'yeshivat batek nisiot shel Ameharetz, and the gatherings of the ignorant. Motzinat adam in holam. They take a person out of this world. Now, once again, one could view this as separate themes. Oversleeping, indulging in wine, childish chatter. Not linked. Rev. Lifshitz, again, not only links them, but views them as representative of four categories. Also interesting in this context is Rev. Lifshitz says all of these four categories represent something that has its place in the world, but can be done in the wrong way. As his introduction to this Mishnah says, Zachar dal dvarim that Rav Dosa is mentioning four things that a person does need very much. And even so, if he's not cautious, these things could be the end of the person's existence. Now, what do the four categories represent for Rav Lifshitz? So, Shana Shachot is pretty clear. right? It's going to represent relaxing, sleeping, and there's no doubt that sleeping and relaxing are part of life, and without them, anybody, including the religious individual, cannot succeed. Sleeping in the morning will, of course, be a metaphor for oversleeping. Right? Sleeping is meant for the nighttime. A person gets a good night's sleep. They're ready for a day of productive activity. A person sleeps through the morning. There's a sense that somehow this aspect has become too widespread in the person's life. The morning is not for sleeping. Wine in the afternoon is also easy to work out. Wine will represent the life of pleasure. Pleasures also have their place. A person has a good food, a good, good drink. Right? They're, they're happy, they're excited, they have more energy. Certainly something the religious person could take play, part of as well. However, the afternoon wine will be a sense, again, of overindulgence. Right? With all our rejection of asceticism, assuming we do reject asceticism, right, this does not mean that hedonism becomes a viable religious option. And that would be represented by Yain Shel Okay, what about Sichat Yeladim? And here I think Rav Lifshitz says something truly profound. Sichat Yeladim for Rav Lifshitz has to do with levity. Mashal Eschok V'Hitalut. Shegamkin miuto yafeh. says this also has its place. But here, let's pay attention to the following point. When it came to sleep and to wine, representing relaxation and physical pleasure, there Rav Lifshitz warned against overindulgence. It was a quantitative distinction. Sleep, but not too much. Pleasure, but not too much. Here, when it comes to the question of levity and lightheartedness and laughter, the distinction moves from the qualitative, from the quantitative sphere to the qualitative sphere. Here also, Elifshit says, a good of laughter is good. It gladdens the heart. But only with great individuals. Their levity also has something of wisdom. And here, Elifshit is pointing out the following distinction. There's different kinds of laughter. There is laughter that is coarse and frivolous. There's laughter that's a pie in the face. And there's a laughter that reveals wisdom. I think if we all think about some of the witty people we know, some who are very clever and funny, there's certain kinds of personalities that their, their wit also is always caught up with wisdom. That their jokes also reveal a certain insight into the human condition, a certain reflection of their knowledge of life. Here, Rav Lifshitz would like us to make a qualitative distinction. Laughter for sure, but not a laughter of coarseness or frivolity, a laughter of wit and wisdom. That is the problem of Sichat Yeladim.
The fourth category, Yeshivat Bate Knesiot Shel Here, Avlifshitz has this as being Mashal L'Sicha Betela. This is idle chatter. And fascinatingly, Relishit says, Shagamkin It also has its place a little bit as good. Person can't be involved in the deepest Talmudic and philosophic discussions all day. Right? The mind needs a break. Sometimes you need to go to lunch and talk about something else. Once again, though, Revelation says we should make a qualitative distinction. After you've been very involved in wisdom, it's appropriate to be a little playful with your friends with matters of not great weight. Once again, among noble people, even their idle chatter has something to be learnt. Which again, I think if we think about what we just mentioned with the joking, we will discover the same thing with idle chatter. There are those that, even when they're not talking about a serious topic, somehow their idle chatter also seems to include a certain wisdom and wit to it. And here, once again, Revolutions would ask us to make this qualitative distinction. So according to Avlifshitz, again, this mission is a unified theme. Four aspects of the world that have their place, be it relaxation or physical enjoyment or joking or idle chatter, but all of them have their place when done well. Some, with regard to the first two, the danger is quantitative. One will overindulge on sleep or physical pleasure, hedonism. With regard to the latter two, the distinction is qualitative. And I think this is something that's a great educational moment. Uh, many of our students... And many of us as well, we tend to think about uh, qualitative, the quality of our learning or the quality of our prayer. Right? The quality of our idle chatter or the quality of our humor would not be central to our religious worldview. And here, Rav Lishitz's reading of the Mishnah gives us a reminder that this too is a distinction of, of great import. We're going to look at one more example of this methodology, Rav Lishitz, and then move on to some of his other insights into Avot. The very next Mishnah in Avot, Paragimol Mishnah Yid Aleph, also has a list. Rabbi Lazar HaModei Omer, HaMechal HaTakachim, if you desecrate the holy things, VaMevazeh HaMoadot, you degrade the festivals, VaHamalbin Pnei Chaveu Barabim, you embarrass your friend publicly, VaMefer Britosh Lavram Avinu Olav HaShalom, you negate the covenant of Avram, you try to do away with your Brit, VaHamagaleh Panim B'Torah Shalok HaLacha, or the one who reveals aspects of Torah in a non-alachic fashion, one who teaches Torah in a heretical fashion, even though you have other redeeming qualities, you have no share in the world to come. Now here, once again, many commentaries read this Mishnah without feeling a need to somehow relate the themes. These are five bad things. This is a very bad thing to embarrass your friend in public. It is a bad thing to desecrate the holy things, a bad thing to teach Torah in a non halachic fashion. These would be separate problematic elements. Rav Lifshitz here gives us another list. And interestingly enough, he thinks that this list is about crucial beliefs. That this really, that the lurking in this mission is five different kinds of heretical opinions. Let's see how he works it through. So the most basic kind of heresy is to deny God. For Rav Lifshit, that's connected to Mechala Takachim. Because if we think about it, the category of Kodesh, of sanctity, is often goes together with divinity. Right? There might be other positive categories that one could talk about without God. But God is the source of Kedusha, the source of sanctity. One who denies God will end up denying the category of Kodesh altogether. So Mechala Takachim is the most basic kind of heresy, the denial of God. Mevazet So here, there's a second kind of heresy. Right? That maybe God created the world, but isn't really involved in divine providence. Right? God created the world and left it, the position of the deists. This is also a philosophical position that's out there, a possible heretical position. Again, if one takes this position, the Chagim will soon fall apart. 
Because the Chagim have to do with the remembrance of certain historical events. Zecher, Litziat Mitzrayim. Right, one who believes that that God doesn't really involve in divine providence. And here, Rav Lifshitz goes further and relates this to the eternality of the world. Because here, there's often a connection that the medieval philosophers made. Those who believe in creation, kreato ex nihilo, yesh me'ayin, will believe that God then could continue running the world, because he made it. Those who, believes in, who believe in the eternality of the world will also be more, be more motivated to lessen the divine role in influencing the world. So for Rav Lifshitz, this kind of heresy believing in the eternality of the world and then limiting, limiting the divine role in the world, that would be manifest in Mevazet HaMoadot, because one will end up denying the Chagim. Okay, now the third one presents more of a challenge for Rav Lushitz, embarrassing your friend in public. This seems to be more an interpersonal crime and not a crime of beliefs. But very interestingly, Rav Lushitz says this reflects a problematic belief as well. And here he says, what's the problem here? This third group believes in God and believes that God created the world, yesh me'ayin, and then therefore God has ongoing providence, but yachishu she'adam nivra b'tzelem alokim. Deny that the humanity is created in the image of God. And therefore, if man is not created in the image of God, it's not such a big deal if one acts in a degrading fashion towards man. Meaning for Rav Lifshitz, it's a crucial Jewish belief that there's something especially dignified about humanity. Very interesting in terms of modernity, where people uh, often think about the relationship between humanity and the animal kingdom, and there are various thinkers who would kind of try to minimize that distinction in order to have us treat the animal kingdom better. But Rav Lifshitz is telling us here that there's the opposite danger, that minimizing that distinction loses the sense of special reverence for what a human being is and what a human being can accomplish. And therefore, Malbin Pnei Chaveu Barabim becomes an intellectual error as much as a social error. It reflects from a lack of understanding of the grandeur of humanity. And here he quotes from the Yain Levanon, from the commentary and avoda of Tully Tzvi Wesley, where he says that that's why it says Chavero, meaning a person could embarrass their enemy just out of hatred, out of spite. It's not because of a grander philosophical position about the nature of humanity. But when embarrasses the friend, why would you embarrass your friend? You don't hate your friend. But if your position is that humanity is not really anything particularly special, so then there's nothing wrong with embarrassing your friend, again revealing the intellectual error in this third category. The fourth category, negating the covenant of Avram. For Avlishitz, this represents the one who accepts that the humanity is created in the Semelokim, be denied that, the Jewish, denied that the Jewish people is given a special role. Right? The covenant of Avram represents a certain amount of cho- chosenness, that God chose Avram to be the forefather of uh, Am Kadosh, and one denies that pre, one is denying that role. And as a result, one will probably also end up denying that the Torah was given to Am Yisrael, because one is convinced that there's no special role the Jewish people have to play. Now, this is an important point, as we'll see, time permitting today, Rev. Lifshitz was someone who certainly had a very positive attitude towards the best elements of the non-Jewish world. At the same time, Rev. Lifshitz says it's a crucial belief, nonetheless, that the Jewish people have some special role to play in the world. Certainly, different thinkers can explain this in different ways, but on some level, it remains a, a crucial Jewish belief that the Jew- Jewish people have a unique role. And that's manifest in this fourth item. Then the fifth item, of Megal Apanim Kalaka, will be a rejection of Tarshabal Peh. Someone who teaches Torah in a non-halachic manner, this will be because they've rejected the oral traditions of our sages, and then they come to different conclusions than the halacha. And here, Rav Lushitz has five different aspects of heresy. I think also this point has broader implications, as we live in a more skeptical era in which there's a movement to make Judaism about practice, not about belief. And of course, we have the Rambam's Yud Gimli Karim, it's striking here that Rav Lifshitz has certain fundamental categories of Jewish belief that are not included in the Yudgimli Karim. 
It's almost as if for Rav Lifshitz, there's other things also that one should believe. Right? Beyond the existence of God and the creation of God, that God created the world, and the providence of God, one should believe in the Telemokim, that man was created in the image of God and has a certain dignity. And one has to also believe in the unique role of the Jewish people to do something for humanity and for Torah. So this is one aspect of Rav Lifshitz, his readings of Mishnayot. We've seen how he makes a link between disparate elements. We have also seen how how he f- makes lists of different elements within a broader idea. Let us look at just a few of his other psychological insights into Avot. Here we will not have a broader methodological point. We'll just see, I think, the tremendous insight Rav Lifshitz brings to the table. If we skip to Perak Dalad, Pasig Yedalad, we have a mission about Rabbi Nurai. Rabbi Nurai, Omar, have a goal of the Torah. A person should exile himself to a place of Torah. Now, one could easily understand that this is not an ideal, but born from necessity. Indeed, the Bartanura says, There's no scholars in your place, so if there's no yeshiva there, there's no one to learn from. So, what can you do? A person has to leave house and home, leave the comforts of the home to go and learn in another town. However, of Lifshitz, in the Boaz there, actually not in the Boaz, it begins in the Yachin, he says that the phrase Gola tells you that it's a value in its own right. Meaning, even if you have the ability to learn Torah in your city, there might be a perfectly nice yeshiva in your city, there's a value somehow in personal growth to leaving the, the home in order to learn. And then in the Boaz, he has a longer explanation for why this is. And here I think the psychological insight is quite sharp. Rav Lifshitz says there's three reasons why for growth a person needs to leave the home. First of all, a person in their youth is often part of a youthful group of friends, and they have their childish method of doing things, which is perfectly legitimate when one is 13. But when one grows older, one needs to grow beyond that. However, if one is still stuck in that group, it could be the group's identity is kind of stuck in a particular model of behavior. And therefore, they need to, <coughs> they need to find a way to move beyond that. Sometimes you need to actually leave the group to move beyond that model of behavior. Secondly, he says, Bebeit aviv yisha'er tamid yelid. Right, as much as the parents love you and want to help you, but there's a certain sense in which the parents always will relate to you as their child. We all know it's difficult for parents to let go, difficult for parents to give their children the independence that's, that's necessary. Once again, leaving home <coughs> helps provide you with that kind of independence. Thirdly, says Rev Lifshitz, and this is perhaps the most interesting, a person is most motivated and grows the most when they do the right thing out of a free choice, not out of compulsion. And here, Rav Lifshitz envisions that one, one, the child is in the parent's house, so a lot of the good the child does is just from habit, just from the fact that the parents are watching over them. Only when the child goes away and is exposed to the freedom and the ability to make their own choices and that kind of independence, only then is the true growth realized. Now, of course, Rav Lifshitz would understand right away that this should not happen when the child is too young. There's a time for everything. But at some point in time, this, this process is crucial. And here, certainly those of us who have experienced the growth of a year of st- studying in Israel or going away to university, understand what Lushitz is talking about. Golel makom Torah. The true growth in spirituality and personality on some level does depend on uh, the independence and the ability to moving away from home. This is Rav Lushitz on Golel makom Torah. Let us look at two more insights of Rav Lushitz and Avot. In Perak Dal of Mishnah Tet, <coughs> we have the following. Rabbi Yonatan Omer Whoever fulfills the Torah in poverty, in the end will fulfill it in wealth. Now, the simplest reading of this Mishnah might view it as a reward. Right? A person under difficult conditions is still able to learn Torah. So they're deserving a reward. So the reward is that they 
soon leave their condition of poverty and uh, gain great wealth. Rav Lifshitz does not read this as a reward. Rav Lifshitz on this Mishnah says, the bet nisyonot yesh. There's two tests in this world. Hatzlacha, ubilti hatzlacha. Success and lack of success. And both of them could force a person to sin. Meaning, for Rav Lifshitz, osher is not a reward in this Mishnah. It's an example of a different kind of test. There's the test of poverty, and there's the test of success and wealth. And then, Rav Lifshitz says, fascinating, Gadol nisayon hatzlacha minisayon bilti hatzlacha. And in fact, the greater test is success. Meaning, religious life is more easily accomplished under duress than under great wealth and success. And therefore, Rav Lifshitz says, if one succeeded under poverty, in his mind, the easier test, then Hashem moves on to the harder test. One has to deal with the test of success. Now, I realize that one could be cynical about this Mishnah, about Rav Lifshitz's reading, and say, well, if you really think wealth is the harder test, I'd be quite happy to have that harder test. But let us not confuse two issues here. It's true that most of us, given a choice between poverty and wealth, would choose wealth. But that's not the same as what's a harder test. Even if one would prefer wealth to poverty, Rav Lishitz may still be totally on the money that wealth is a, and success is a more difficult thing. And indeed, one looks around the world and sees that those who are truly fabulously wealthy, this is often a major difficulty, both in terms of family life and in terms of religious life. This is something that truly is a great test. And here for Rav Lifshitz, the mission of Osher is not about Osher's reward, but Osher is a different kind of religious challenge. We'll look at one more. We're moving now to Paragimo, Mishnah Yud Gimel. And we have here the following teaching from Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva Omer, Schok the Kalit Rosh Margilin Le'erva. Levity and lightheadedness lead the way towards sex- sexual immorality. Now here I think one can ask, why is this specifically this sin? Right? If levity plays a problematic role in one's religious life, and it could lead to the doing away of a sense of prohibition. So that could be said about anything. You could say that levity leads to eating non-kosher food, or levity leads to many other averot. Why would the Mishnah focus specifically on erva? And here Rav Lifshitz has a tremendous insight. He says, Znut shuhu ham yuchad Sexual morality is unique in the world of sins. It's impossible without the partnership of two. Most sins a person can do by themselves. If a person wants to eat tray food, they don't need anybody else. In the privacy of one's own dining room, one could eat a cheeseburger. However, when it comes to sexual immorality, that usually depends on two, which means that embarrassment will play a crucial role in preventing sin, right? Because embarrassment can present, prevent the conversation from ever taking place. And here, Elisha says, that explains this Mishnah. Levity making jokes about certain things could remove the sense of, of uh, embarrassment, you make enough jokes about something and you realize it's a topic that there's no reticence about anymore. And then, without that embarrassment, then the sin can happen. So there's a specific danger there, Bikiv is warning us why Schok and Kalarosh lead to Erva. Because Erva, embarrassment is the stopping point in a way that it's not in many other Averot. But enough levity can undo that embarrassment. I think here also Rev Lifshitz has an insight very relevant to us. I think modernity often thinks that uh, any reticence or embarrassment about sexuality or about other matters reveals some kind of psychological uh, malady that would best be overcome by a good therapist. And here, Rev. Lifshitz is telling us that, no, the healthy religious individual will be reticent about certain topics and will be embarrassed. Indeed, the undermining of that is something that leads down the path to sin. This is, uh, I think, Rev. Lifshitz and Avot. We've seen his methodology with tying things together. We've seen some of his psychological insights. Uh, next week, we'll move on to other aspects of Rev. Lifshitz's thought.